You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to present the basics. We have finished the chapter on absolute versus conventional reality in Mahasi Sayadaw's book, um, the Manual of Insight. This is a new translation by the Metta Vipassana uh, group. And so tonight we're going to begin uh, the fourth chapter in the book, which is called The Development of Mindfulness. In this chapter I will explain the way in which to meditate and the way uh, of correct seeing and understanding based on the polytexts, commentaries, and subcommentaries. In the last chapter, I explained that a person who takes the tranquility vehicle meditates on the jhana consciousness that he or she has entered, the physical basis for jhana consciousness or physical phenomena that have arisen due to that jhana consciousness. So if you recall that discussion, you allow the mind to enter into jhana, and then as the mind comes out of jhana, you focus your attention and explore the actual mind states of jhana that have arisen. So this is a mind-focused practice, a path of tranquility or concentration. Similarly, a person who takes the vehicle of insight observes presently arisen consciousness of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, the physical basis of these kinds of consciousness, physical phenomena arisen due to these kinds of consciousness, or physical phenomena arisen due to the objects of these kinds of consciousness. Moreover, I explain that according to the polytext commentaries and subcommentaries, seeing refers to the entire mental process of seeing, not to each individual mental moment of it. Further explanation on this point will also be given in chapter 6 when we deal with the insight knowledge of dissolution. So, the way that I usually like to phrase it is, you have the capacity to sense, you have the capacity, you have the object that can be sensed, and when they meet, you have the consciousness of the sensing experience, which then the mind knows. Is that making sense? What? Sure. You have the capacity to sense, so seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling, and thinking is a sense. Um, ambitious. Okay. <laughs> totally. So sorry. <laughs> oh, wait, someone there? No. Okay. No. George, how's it In seeing, there is the capacity to see, and then there's the object that can be seen, and when they connect, 
the consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows. That's the whole process that they're talking about. So you could investigate really any aspect of that that you wanted. What is the capacity simply to see without the object making contact then there's no sensing experience, right? So the consciousness of the sensing experience arises which means awareness knows that that thing is happening consciously. And then there's the thing that we make it into. So you have the raw sensing experience. If you were simply to, to experience seeing without thinking, then you would just really be seeing a swirl of colored dots and a swirl of grayscale dots and no fixation of any kind. And then the, um, the body-mind through conditioning understands and recognizes patterns. The mind is really good at recognizing patterns. And once it recognizes a particular pattern of seeing, sensing, it will fixate it and make it solid. And then you'll have the experience of the solid. But it's not the seeing, it's the mental formation that is the result of the seeing process. If you look around the room and you see it solid, you may notice that the mind has divided people into male and female, and it happened without you actually requesting it to happen. It just does it because that's how it's conditioned. The mind is very binary around sex. Um, the floor is solid, the ceiling is solid, and when you look around, everything looks like it has detail and it's in focus. This is a complete creation in the mind. It doesn't actually exist as a sensing experience because that's not how we see. Is that making sense? So it's very convenient to be in the solid world and there's no problem with the solid world. The problem comes when you're not free to come and go from the solid world. If you were free to come and go from the solid world, you could touch back into the purely sensing experience and compare it to the solid world that you've made and see whether or not there's any distortion built into the experience. Is that making sense? You look around the room and some people are attractive and some people may not be attractive. You think you look around the room and some people may be sexually appealing and, and other people may not be sexually appealing. This is all of your conditioning happening. Um, but that doesn't mean because one person uh, is sexually arousing to you that all people will be or that that person will be sexually arousing to everyone else. Does that, does that make sense? Um, that really based on your conditioning these things happen to the formation of the sensing experience. Is that making sense? So that you want to be, be aware of this. If the mind is angry, the way that you make the solid experience is very different than the, the pure sensing experience. If the mind is happy, the way that you make the world is very different than... And you want to be able to see that that's what the mind is doing so that you have a, a more fluid uh, response to it. You don't have to believe the distortion that the mind is putting in if you can see the process in which the mind has built in the distortion. And you can be free to take an action that is not uh, uh, skewed by the distortion. Is that making sense? So um, I often talk about attachment and uh, 
I often suggest that people learn the list of secure attachment skills so that if you're, you have insecure attachment, you can recognize the situation, you can recognize the habitual insecure response to what's happening, prevent yourself from taking that response, pick something from the list of secure uh, attachment strategies, take that action, and then create a secure relationship based on your own actions, even if you haven't uh, um, uprooted the mind's habit of distorting. Is that making sense? Where can we find those? The list? Yeah. Um, it is in the Dropbox for oh, deepening it? your practice here. Yeah. <laughs> for the morning meditations? And for the morning meditations. I have a list of 14 skills that I describe uh, based on the adult attachment interview. They're the, the adult uh, attachment interview. Do you know what the adult attachment interview is? Um, do you know uh, attachment theory? So Attachment theory uh, was originated by John Bowlby and then he hired a researcher named Mary Ainsworth, an American woman, to devise a strategy to uh, test infants and their attachment responses. And then when they wanted to see whether the attachment responses in, inf in young children was stable throughout a lifetime, they developed a, an instrument called the Adult Attachment Interview, which is 20 questions, which was de developed by Mary Main, uh, Mary Ain Ainsworth, assistant, her assistant. And what it does is measures the way that you use language. So um, the strange situation, which is what they use to assess children, the first time they assess children is at 10 months old. So already at 10 months old, you're exhibiting your attachment strategy. Um, another, if we were to translate that into Buddhist view, uh, uh, the first of the Eightfold Path right view, at, eight at 10 months old, you're already exhibiting a distortion in view that, that is predictable based on your conditioning. Right? So you take a child and you put them in those conditions, their view is predictably distorted. And then, then they, they did do the first, month, first test at around 10 months, and then they wanted to see whether the, the attachment strategy that a 10-month-old had would be uh, resilient. And so they tested them again at 6 and found that there was an 85% consistency. And then they tested them at 12, and around a 70% consistency from the first. It's a very high number. They tested them again at 18, at 24. They've tested them all the way up into the 50s now because that's as long as they've had. And the attachment strategy holds through a lifetime if you don't do anything intentional to change it. So that original experience, that original relationship with your caregiver, um, forms your sense of self and your own capacity and forms your sense of how the world was, will respond to you. And if you don't do anything about it, you will actually move through your entire lifespan as if those things were true. This is why this process is so useful in terms of meditation as a, developing a skill to examine this process that you go through so that you can see the way that you make yourself and make the world. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the main teaching on 
mindfulness meditation, the refrain uh, says to contemplate mindfulness of inside, which is yourself, and mindfulness of outside, which is other people. Oh, the world in, in, in Theravada Buddhism means other people because we're herd animals, we're meant to live in, in social groups. And then the mindfulness of inside and outside. You're aware that you're, you have a mind state and that the other people have a, a mind state that's different than yours and that they're interactive, that your mind state can affect someone else and that uh, uh, and the vice versa, right? Your mind states can affect somebody else, their mind state can affect you. And if you can watch that happening, then you have uh, freedom to choose uh, a better outcome. Uh, one, the reason I say outcome is because I think of karma as you take an action and then what comes back at you are the choices that you have based on that action, right? If you yell at somebody, what comes back at you are the next possibilities. If you're kind to somebody, what comes back are different possibilities often, right? So the adult attachment interview is these, the 20 questions and it, it evaluates in an adult what your attachment strategy is based on how you use language. And it's, it's such a fundamental description of you, how you experience the world. Um, mindfulness of insight. Do you, insight. Do you think of yourself as capable of getting your needs met? Do you think that you can explore the world and find meaning for yourself in the exploration? Do you think that the world is filled with people who would be happy to meet your needs and happy to help you in your exploration? And if you do, then you are securely attached. If you think of yourself as somebody who's totally capable, amazingly capable of meeting your needs, and you think of the rest of us as dupes that you can just take from you what you want, then you would have a dismissing attachment strategy, and it's based on those views. I would meet your needs if you were capable of meeting my needs, but since you're not capable of meeting my, uh, my needs, I'm just going to take what I need for my needs to be met, would be a dismissing view. I'm, you may have encountered these people. The President of the United yeah. States, for one. If you think of yourself as incapable of getting your needs met, but strangely, everyone else has figured it out, <laughs> then you would be preoccupied. On one end, helpless, on the other end, kind of chaotic and angry. Um, I am incapable of getting my needs met, but you could meet them if I could just figure out how to get you to do it. And so all of your energy goes into trying to figure out how to get somebody else to meet your needs. Um, the main dilemma with this is that the capacity to get somebody else to meet your needs suggests that you are not helpless, right? That you could actually meet your needs for yourself if you could see through the view of, I can't do this, you have to do it for me. Sorry, which one label is that? That's preoccupied. Um, and then fearful avoidant is, uh, I'm, I can't meet my own needs and I can't ask anyone else to help me because if I ask them to help me, I'm inviting them to harm me. 
So it's better that I have my needs unmet and I remain passive so that I'm not further injured. So that's fearful avoid. And then unresolved is the other adult category. That simply means that you use dissociation as the primary means of emotional regulation. Uh, and that comes from trauma where you couldn't as a child get the body away from the harm and so you dissociate out of the body so that it can be harmed and you don't have to be directly present for the experience of abuse. Um, so, moreover, I explained that according to the polytext commentaries and subcommentaries, seeing refers to the entire mental process of seeing not each individual mental moment of it. Um, and so the first subchapter here is checking meditation against the polytext, five kinds of phenomena. One should note seeing as seeing at the very moment of seeing. The same applies for hearing and so on. When one notes seeing, one experiences any of the five kinds of uh, phenomena. Eye sensitivity, form base, eye consciousness, um, and uh, mental contact between eye and object is contact and feeling is Vedna, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral aspect of the sensing experience itself. For example, when the clarity of a meditator's eyesight becomes obvious to him or her, the meditator is mainly experiencing eye sensitivity. When the visible form that has been seen draws one attention, one is mainly aware of visual object. If one notices the mental state of seeing, then one is realizing eye consciousness. If the contact between one's eye and the visual object is clear, then one is experiencing mental contact. If uh, one finds uh, the object to be pleasant and pleasant, or neither unpleasant or pleasant, then one is mainly aware of feeling. So, <clears throat> when when if if it is so then rather than noting seeing as seeing, shouldn't one note it as eye sensitivity, the visual object, eye consciousness, metal, mental contact or feeling according to one, one's clearly experiencing, so that the labels will be in harmony with what they indicate. This sounds very reasonable in practice, however, it should be, it would keep the meditator so busy thinking about exactly which object they are experiencing in the moment of seeing that there would be many gaps between notings. In other words, one would not be able to focus on present objects. In addition, one would fail to note the thinking and analyzing, so one's mindfulness, concentration, and insight knowledge would not be able to mature in a timely manner. Therefore, you should not note while simultaneously trying to find a word that perfectly matches the label with the experience. Instead, you should simply note seeing. So also remember the instruction that you want to know what's easy and obvious. We can infer that all of these things are happening in the simple act of noting that our attention is seeing. We don't need to have the experience of it nor label at that fine level. It is sufficient to note what's easy and obvious. As your practice continues, as your practice matures, your resolution will increase. 
and then what's easy and obvious will be of finer and finer detail. But there's no need to make an attempt to note everything. We can infer that that's actually what's happening. Um, let's see where we are. So um, I think that's enough of that. We have been doing a lot of insight practice, and I got a request to do uh, a break from that and do metta meditation, and, and I thought that that was actually a good idea. So I thought tonight that we would do metta meditation, but teaching it in the same metta jhana way that uh, I have been teaching for a couple of years. Um, in relating it to mindfulness, mindfulness uh, in means awareness of the present moment. So the instruction that Mahasi is giving here is what do you pay attention to in the experience of the present moment? What, what's worth paying attention to in the experience of the present moment? So he is describing Karnaka Samadhi, which is momentary concentration insight practice, which is a path to liberation, and metta jhana is a concentration heart practice. So uh, we won't be exploring um, the, the sensing aspects that are described uh, in tonight's uh, reading, um, but we will be attempting to concentrate the mind and incline the mind toward kindness. The metta vipassana approach is really about uh, developing a refuge in metta so that you're free to go deeply into the insight practice. Uh, what typically happens if you get into insight practice and the, the uh, experience of doing it is disturbing or dysregulating, which it can easily be, and you don't have a good way of uh, withdrawing from that uh, or uh, rebalancing or coming into peace with that, then it tends to make you timid in your exploration because you don't want to go into a place where you will be so dysregulated that it's disruptive. We're all householders and we need to be able to balance our practice with our functioning in the world. And if you felt that you were doing insight practice and it was actually dysregulating you to the point that you wouldn't be able to function very well in the world, then you're likely to withdraw from the practice. So balancing metta jhana with insight practice uh, and developing the capacity to, at any moment when you need to withdraw from the insight practice because it's too distressing into a practice that will bring you into peace, bring you into calmness, makes you actually pretty fearless in your insight practice because you know no matter how it gets in insight, you have this, this practical mean of pulling right out and rebalancing yourself. So it's really useful to, to develop that. So in using metta as, the, um, as a concentration practice, what we're focusing on is the mind state of metta itself. So beginning to have sen enough sensitivity that you can actually identify uh, the mind state by its physical sensation in the mind. Um, if, if I were to describe my experience, it's inside the, the skull and it, it starts about mid-forehead and runs underneath the eyes to about here all the way across, so like that. 
and it's a, a vibra vibratory sensation inside the head. Most of my mind states have that quality to them and the pattern of the vibration differs depending on which mind state is present. So this is also incredibly useful in terms of your insight practice because if you can locate where you experience mind states and you can begin to recognize the pattern of the mind state, then it's, you can much more readily identify the mind state that's there and so that you can begin to track the, the quality of distortion. A, a meta mind state is distorting the same way a mind state of anger is distorting or sadness or any of the others. Um, but it's a beneficial distortion. So it's inclining the mind toward kindness. It's not We're not looking for equanimity as the end result, which is what we would be looking for if we were doing Vipassana jhana. We're looking to incline the mind to kindness and become very concentrated on the kindness of the mind. So the main object is the mind state. We, we intend the metta toward somebody. We intend the, the loving-kindness toward someone. In traditional Theravada Buddhism, that person has to be alive. So there is no metta for people that are not alive. When I was in Myanmar, I raised my hand and I said, I thought people were reincarnated. So anyone who's dead would be alive in another <coughs> form. And um, the Sado said, that's true, but you wouldn't know them, so you couldn't direct the metta to them. right? So it has to be someone you know that you can direct the metta to. Um, some people are visually oriented in their thinking process, and so um, you may notice that a visual, uh, visual thinking experience of the person may arise in the mind, or it may not arise in the mind. If you're very visually oriented, then if you don't control visual thinking, uh, it can easily pull you out of the concentrated state. And so sometimes it's important to have a visual representation of the person there, but it's not necessary. Then a still image is usually better than a, a, a moving image. There is no focus in, in metta jhana for trying to produce a feeling state in the body. It can be any feeling state in the body. What's useful to know about that, if you're able to hold the mind state of kindness, any feeling state that comes up in the body, you will experience through the mind state of kindness. So it will be different. Um, a lot of uh, the metta practice in the West is what we would call a wet metta, whereas the vipassana, uh, sorry, the metta jhana is a dry metta practice, where you're repeating a mantra or a narrative in the mind intended to produce a, a positive feeling state in the body, and that's not what we're doing here. In a, in a metta jhana, the practice, the phrases are very concise, very short. We don't want to create a thinking process even though the thinking process would have it as a, has a emotion as a component, we don't want to think ourselves into a positive state because it's too easy to lose mindfulness. We get pulled out of the present moment into the narrative and then we are actually caught up in thinking even though it's driving a positive feeling state. So we lose mindfulness and actually we're engaged in the practice of sentimentality which is the near enemy of metta. In dry metta, we're 
totally present and totally mindful of the, of the present moment as we're doing the practice. Um, the phrase that I recommend is a phrase um, that the uh, Sayadaw uh, uses, um, which is, may I be peaceful when you're practicing for yourself and may you be peaceful when you're practicing for someone else. Tonight, I thought that we would begin with practice for a uh, easy person. This is uh, typically the category of teachers, mentors, or benefactors, but in the West, uh, that category doesn't necessarily lend itself to ease. <laughs> in Asia, you revere your teachers, you revere your elders, and, and you're instructed to do something from you know, the time you're a zygote. And here, we don't necessarily have that. So, um, an easy person will do, a, a, say, a few 10-minute segments where you just let the mind go and see if you can find an easy person. And what I mean by easy is that when you think of them, the mind state of loving-kindness comes with them. So we all carry within us working models of ourselves, which include the mind states through which we view ourselves, and we all carry working models of everyone we know, which includes the mind state that we see them through. So if you see somebody as difficult, that means you have a mind state that they're difficult, and when you view them, you view them through the mind state of their difficult. If you think of somebody as easy, then you're viewing them through this mind state of ease. If you think of them kindly, or you think of them as a kind person, then you the mind state of kindness is there and you just need to think of them and that mind state will be installed. The idea is to begin to develop a short list of people that it's easy to think of and change the mind state. Uh, if you have a list of, maybe, I think I probably have four people that if I think of them the mind state of loving kindness comes with them. And so if I notice an afflictive mind state, I really only need to think of one of the people on my short list and the mind state changes. It's an incredibly useful tool for moving around the world. If you notice you're angry, you can think of somebody and shift that into a kind mind state pretty easily. Is that making sense? So how did that go? the mind state of that time? A couple times, yeah. Where it would just kind of soften and then meta would just be there. Mm -hmm. Good. And inside the head, locate the look where it is? Mm. Vaguely. Okay. So keep on that part and don't mm -hmm. ignore the rest. Mm -hmm. 
because um, that's really what we're, we're trying to find in the beginning of the practice where it is mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and I told you where I find mine but mm-hmm. it's likely that you'll find yours in a different place mm-hmm. uh, because there, there's a wide range of where or how people experience it and then once you get the mindset of mention you're able to maintain it then what you want to do is investigate the quality of the experience so then what you want knowing the mind state of mental is there examine maybe the quality of the judgment is it different than if the mind state isn't there and the mind state of judgment is there that, that's the, the, the edge good uh-huh is um judgment always cool in town yeah so if it's warm it's sentimentality uh, it could be a number of things um it could be loba, which is craving. It could be tanha, which is craving for sensual desire, um, sexual desire, something like that. Um, so it's a coolness and it's a calmness, always. Um, no desire, no craving, no anger. But those are all the heat. Good. You, uh, so I feel like I was able to sustain it pretty well and, and locate it um, through my, my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a few moments with, with two people that I, that I did sort of, it was really interesting, like that I could feel my state sort of shift into, it was like I felt so much appreciation that it, that it became a, a bit emotional actually. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a shift though I could feel there was more pressure and there, there was there's a shift in the state but it was still I don't know if it was ta- I, 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 it felt it felt eventually like it was taking away from from that but at first mm-hmm. it felt like it was a reaction to to mm-hmm. so then it, moving into content more or staying with the mindset of meta is what's coming to mind that it, if you pull, if your mind is drawn into the content of the thought of the person, yeah, maybe. then you want to pull back into the mind state of metta. I think that's what it might have been. Good. Lots of clarity there. Really good report. Someone else? I like the fact that you mentioned uh, the notion of like sentimentality. Um, being the enemy, I forget the exact phrase, but yeah, I think that's the difficulty I've been having necessarily with the practice is the notion of indulging in romantic notions of what any type of love is. Um, Who doesn't love a good tearjerker? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I did, I suppose during this practice, I thought. I was thinking distinctly, or not thinking distinctly, but I thought this shouldn't take much effort, or I, sh- I shouldn't have to try and achieve a sense of love, especially for someone. These are Mother's Day. I chose mm-hmm. my mom, and I don't think our relationship is particularly complex. Like, she's a very simple, lovely person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to think as basic as I could towards my mother, like just or or as as the most fundamental like 
sensation I could get from that person rather than examples of why right. I love, you know. And uh, it was it was actually really nice. It was, Good. Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Good. So thank you. Mm -hmm. It's funny to have the mindset of metta. Everybody looked so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is deepening your practice. Deepening your practice um, means I'm always going to be suggesting ways to deepen your practice. One way might be to go on retreat. Uh, if you haven't been on a retreat, um, I have a, a week-long retreat coming up in July at the Seven Circles Center near Sequoia National Park, so it should be quite beautiful up there. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat, so we'll do a few days of Metta practice and then a few days of Vipassana practice. There's still some spaces in there, and I have a flyer out there um, for it. If you want to do a longer retreat, I'm having uh, the spring retreat in New York State at uh, the Watershed Center, which is also quite a beautiful place to retreat. That's a 10-day retreat. So we'll do four days of Metta and four days of Vipassana. There's still some spaces in that one, and we have a schol some scholarship money available for that one, so if you want to come. Uh, those are both on the website, metagroup.org. Um, another way to keep your practice uh, deepening is to meditate on a regular basis. So I, I have morning meditation, which I do to support daily practice. You call in at 7.30 if you want to do it live, and then meditate from 7.30 to 7.55. We alternate uh, insight practice Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and metta practice Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, it's not for everybody, so we have. I've made a, f uh, a little coupon out there that has a link to the website where you can sign up for a free month and see whether it works for you or not, and then if it, if it does, it'll roll into a subscription. Um, so, uh, this class is offered on a dana basis. The suggested dana here is $20. So, dana is the Pali word for generosity, so we're, we're asking all of us uh, Dharma teachers, basically, for you to engage in a personal practice of generosity. So this is really something to open your heart up. Um, so it should feel generous. Uh, if $20, uh, if you're really well-resourced and $20 doesn't mean that much to you, then you should be giving at a level that has some meaning to you. If $20 is a good amount, then you can give it that level. If that's uh, more than your resources, then um, consider each time you come to give something uh, that feels generous uh, even if it's not $20. And then also know that we as a community are very happy to support the, the, the practice space for you to come. Uh, so please feel to come, feel free to come. I have a bowl out there for, for cash and I also take cards and we don't really need to do anything but if you're using a cushion, put it back on the pile. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>